Okay, hello friends and welcome to the Chagura. Today we have a shiur with Rabbi Chaim Angel, which will be the second installment of a three-part Tanakh series with Rabbi Angel exploring literalism, superstition, and archaeology, where today we will dive into orthodoxy and biblical archaeology. As usual, all our classes are recorded and will be available on our website after. If you have any questions, please raise your hand or post in the chat box. And please, God, there will also be time for questions at the end. This class is dedicated to the Refuah Shalema of Anael Bat Rivka, a premature baby who has had two blood transfusions. May Hashem provide her a full Refuah and her parents' strength during these difficult times. Anael Bat Rivka, please keep her in your prayers. With that said, thank you so much, everyone, for joining. Rabbi Angel, it is a privilege to have you with us, and the floor is yours. And thank you so much. And once again, thank you to the Chavura, to Sina, to Oha, to everybody who's made this possible. Uh, it's a, it was very inspiring last week. I walked out of there saying, wow, I was in London for an hour learning with a wonderful Chavrat people. And it's amazing what you've built in, in so short a time. And it's had such a meaningful impact both in England, but also far beyond that, including one of my students from Yeshiva University was on. And he has found that so meaningful. I spoke to him afterwards saying I wasn't expecting to see him that afternoon. I saw him in the morning and it was, and he just said this has been really one of the highlights for him over certainly during COVID, but obviously beyond that because of the array of people that you've been able to bring in. So thank you. Uh, archaeology. I'm not an archaeologist. I have zero background other than digging in a sandbox when I was a little kid. And I used to find money every now and then, which is like a dime, and it made me very, very happy. Uh, but, but I have no background. I never went on one of these college digs or any of that stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm coming at it from just a pure Tanakh point of view rather than with any archaeological background and just thinking about uh, where orthodoxy and archaeology can and should coexist and where they where they don't. Uh, part of the problem today is that the stuff that makes it into the popular press or most commonly the internet, you've all been down that drill. Okay, day one, somebody posts an article that some prominent archaeologist thinks that he found something that proves something very important and splashy. Okay, then within 24 hours, usually within 24 seconds, you will have other prominent archaeologists posting very hostile comments saying why this is total nonsense and there's, there's no evidence whatsoever and it's a misread of everything. And then we all go back to the sports pages, right? That's usually how it all goes. And then it just fades away and, and we get on with our lives because none of this really matters. That's how most people who are not engaged in scholarship deal with archaeology on a regular basis, simply through that sequence. So I find that a terrible distortion of what matters and a terrible distortion of what we can actually get out of the whole field of archaeology. The biggest problem in the world since biblical archaeology became a meaningful issue about 200 years ago is what questions you ask. I'm all about questions. And when you ask good questions, you usually at least get a fruitful discussion. You may not get the right answer, but at least good things will happen because you're asking the right question. And if you ask the wrong question, then you're doomed to failure from the get-go. The most commonly asked question over the last 200 years <coughs> since the rise of biblical archaeology is, did Tanakh happen? <coughs> and when you ask that question, you run into a wall. Excuse me one second. <coughs> Needless to say, I'm totally fine, thank God. It's just that you swallow the wrong way and all of a sudden it's a disaster. Hang on. So the use of archaeology either to prove the truthful historicity of Tanakh or to disprove the historicity of Tanakh is a failed enterprise. 
And the reason for this is that you're turning Tanakh into a history book. And then either it's right or it's not right. And as soon as you've turned Tanakh into a history book, you've already lost the battle because Tanakh isn't a history book. It contains a lot of history, to be sure. Many events happened, are recorded in Tanakh. But it's prophecy that uses history as a platform to discuss the relationship between God and Israel and God and humanity. And that is such a critical point, nothing to do with archaeology, just in general. If people simply use Tanakh as a history book, they, even if they don't bring in archaeology at all, they've already failed the task of what it means to learn religiously. Okay, so it's important to note that. And so what ends up happening if you ask the question of what happened historically, uh, you will find that there are labels that scholars like to use for various camps within the engagement between Tanakh and archaeology. One is called the good old-fashioned fundamentalist, which is a Christian term. It goes back a little over 100 years. It's been applied to other faiths like Jews or Islam or others. But fundamentalism at its core is a Protestant idea, which is very prevalent, especially in the southern United States of America, but other places also. Uh, The idea of a fundamentalist is every word of Tanakh is literally and historically true. And it really does not matter what happens in the world of archaeology at all. If it's nice when archaeological evidence corroborates something that happens in Tanakh, but that's the end of the story. That's fundamentalism. There's something called the maximalists. These are people who, like the fundamentalists, believe that Tanakh is, fun- is generally speaking, historically true. But they're willing to say that in the event that there is an outright conflict with empirical evidence, then you can't ignore empirical evidence. That's what a maximalist would do. You can't deny science in, in the face of faith. Rather, that's where you would start to tinker with what the meaning of Tanakh is. That's a maximalist. A minimalist starts backwards, says that nothing in Tanakh happened unless you have archaeological evidence to prove it. Now, in reality, most professional archaeologists are none of those three things. Most professional archaeologists, hopefully, study the data and take that evidence wherever it goes. And they're not... They're not bound by either a denial of Tanakh nor by a corroboration of Tanakh. They simply learn archaeology for its own sake. And they might also be interested in the intersection with Tanakh. Okay? The reality is that people like Rafsad Gaon and Rambam, long before archaeology was an issue, uh, adopted what we would call today that maximalist stance. They both very emphatically say that Tanakh never can co- uh, contradict empirical evidence. There never can be a conflict between Torah and science for the simple reason that God made both. So if you and I perceive a conflict between Torah and science, something is wrong, we need to in, but it's our fault. We need to interpret something differently to make them match because they cannot really conflict in real terms since God made both of those. So that's the position of Rav Sadigon and Rambam that they took with what today we call empirical science, but the same would hold true with archaeology as well. Meaning if there were genuine facts that contradicted things in Tanakh, okay, we would take that seriously. The reality is archaeology is not an empirical science. It's it's nothing like experimental science that experimental scientists do. And so what ends up happening is that archaeologists very often realize there's very little evidence at all of anything. And so what they try to do is piece together the best portrait that they can piece in light of that evidence. But when you do that, you absolutely cannot Uh, come to a comprehensive picture of anything. In other words, uh, an easy example of this. Archaeologists have found many idols in the land of Israel, just little statues. They've never found Hashem. Right? They never will. 
It's not gonna, Hashem's not buried underground. Hashem's not an object. Okay, but that doesn't prove that Hashem doesn't exist and that idols did exist. It just means that obviously idolatry was a problem, which you and I already knew just from learning Tanakh. Listen to those Nevi'im go on a tirade about it, many tirades. Okay, but this doesn't tell you the whole story of the relationship between God and Israel. It tells you, here are some actual idols that were found from the data to the biblical period. That's an easy example, but of course there are many others. So since there's absent so much evidence, scholars often debate the significance of that silence or that skimpy, skimpy data. And that's something that runs us into the general problem, which affects me and it affects every single archaeologist of any stripe, and that is human bias. Those with a more religious maximalist bent, well, funny enough, interpret data in light of Tanakh and decide that for the most part, there is general agreement between Tanakh and archaeology. Those with an anti-religious bent or an anti-Israel bent or both of those things will, funny enough, interpret data to discover, oh, there are maximum conflicts between Tanakh's stories and archaeology. And that's just what happens when you have a bias. Since there's not insufficient data you know, with physics, hypothetically, you can have a truly pious, religious, God-fearing physicist and an absolute atheist, anti-religious physicist, and they might come to the exact same conclusions based on the data. That's not going to happen in archaeology. It never will happen in archaeology, simply because there's so little evidence and because biblical archaeology is such a loaded topic. So I think it's important for all sides to at least acknowledge it's a loaded topic. And that to try to ascertain what is the historicity of this or that will be a very difficult science. What I can tell you is that there's a wonderful scholar, an English one, so I feel good about doing this with the Kabura. His name is Kenneth Kitchen. He wrote a book back in, two, or he published a book back in 2003. It's just an interesting book. Again, he's a Protestant scholar. I don't know how religious or not he is. I, I really don't know enough about him, but he does have that great British sense of humor, which I find in general wonderful. And he does it really, really, really well, even in such a serious book as this one. So it works out great. So in the meantime, uh, Kenneth Kitchen makes some excellent arguments, not to prove anything in Tanakh, because you can't prove these things. He just notes a couple of very basic premises, which academic Bible scholarship seldom notices. And that I think is a worthwhile argument. Uh, Academic scholarship often makes the assumption that the Torah was written by many later authors, reflecting their own time rather than some ancient time. It's a very common argument that you'll find in academic scholarship, and that's really at the heart of where you might find a conflict between Jewish tradition or Christian tradition, I happen to represent the Jewish one, uh, Jewish tradition and, and the academy and Bible study. Okay, so that's where, you have, that's where you have that particular type of conflict. So Kitchen isn't going to prove that God gave the Torah. That's not his agenda at all. He's a prominent orient, Orientalist, and, and, and he knows archaeological scholarship very well. So here's what he points out. He points out, number one, our Avot, I mean, he wouldn't call them that, but I can, uh, our Avot, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, regularly violate laws that appear later on in the Torah. I was taught as a kid that they somehow kept the whole Torah based on certain Midrashim. But there are plenty of Midrashim and later commentators who disagree with that whole premise. And honestly, that's what Yeshivot should be teaching. Because otherwise, you're just turning the Avot into wanton sinners. They're constantly breaking the Torah. Abraham is serving meat and milk at a meal. Yaakov is married to two sisters. They build Matzevot, you know, single pillar, um, you know, altars instead of the multi-stone altars. You're not allowed to do that. 
they were allowed to do that for the very simple reason that they lived before the Torah, before the Torah was given. Okay, so from my point of view, that's just a good learning tip. It's, it's, to me, it's absolutely pointless to make the avod into sinners when you have a perfectly reasonable argument, namely that they didn't have to keep Tariyag Mitzvah yet. Uh, but Kitchen uses this for a whole different reason. If a later author who already had access to the laws of the Torah composed these narratives out of, out of whole cloth, the avod would keep the mitzvah because you're making up the stories of reflecting your own time. The very fact that the Torah presents them as not keeping the Torah actually is a great argument in favor of the authenticity of the stories. Again, not proving that they occurred historically. You can't do that based on that argument. I might believe that they happened historically. That's a belief. You can't do that based on this argument. But you can say these stories are incredibly ancient and predate the giving of the Torah in any form. Here's another one. Kitchen very carefully documents how the Avot in those stories uh, practice just social and legal conventions that were very prevalent at the time that the Avot should have lived according to tradition. Whereas the, the, the st- standard academic view of when the Torah was composed, uh, they, they didn't have those practices anymore. The ancient areas no longer practiced these things. These were really old practices. Uh, so no later author even would have known of these ancient conventions let alone written stories reflecting them. This again demonstrates not the historicity of a story, but simply the fact that the ancient setting that these stories have is correct. They only match the ancient setting. Same thing is true with Shemot's descriptions. They have a Shemot's description of Israel's life in Egypt. Those stories really reflect an ancient Egyptian period from the time that the stories were supposed to have happened. And they don't reflect a much later period of time in Egypt when Many academics think that these stories were in fact composed. These are great arguments, again, not to keep on stressing this point, not to prove historicity of anything. You can't prove historicity of something. As I would like to say, even if we somehow could dig up the bones, I don't think that we should ever do this, of our Vahamitz and Yaakov and the Imahot and get a DNA sample and somehow, good Lord knows how, somehow determine these really are Avrahamitz and Yaakov and Sarah Rechel and Leah even though Rachel wouldn't even be in the Maratha Machpelah. Let's stick with the other three. That would be great. Let's say somehow we could do that. That still wouldn't prove that these stories happen. That would just prove that these people are real, right? So what exactly have you gained from any of this pursuit? The answer is, of course, nothing whatsoever, which is why I think that this whole enterprise from that angle is a waste of time. Now, our emunah that these stories happen is not rooted at all in archaeological corroboration. Even if we show these were the conventions of that time. And even if we show that they could not have been written later, that demonstrates the authenticity of the setting. But I can't prove that these stories happened. There's no way that we could prove from archaeology that these stories did or did not happen. And so in general, Rav Sadegon and Rambam give us the maximalist outlook that if there ever were a moment that archaeology would actually demonstrate on a factual level that something in Tanakh isn't quite right, which it never has done, by the way, but if it could, Okay, so we'd have that latitude to reinterpret something. But there are no cases of actual factual contradictions. Most of the so-called conflicts are rooted in the fact that there is insufficient archaeological data. And that's something completely different. Okay, so so part number, section one of the shiur is just to say everybody should get over the notion of the question, did it happen? Because archaeology cannot help us. Okay, it can't hurt us, it can't help us, nothing. Okay, so that's a dead issue. We're done. Now we're going to move on to where archaeology can be helpful. So here, just 
we have the advantage of 200 years worth of scholarship. If we were living 200 years ago, uh, I would not be able to give this part of the shiur because I would have no wisdom of what to, it's not my wisdom. Scholarship has given us 200 years of wisdom of processing the information and creating a method. Here's, here's what it used to look like. There were three waves. And by the third wave, we have something intelligent to say. The first two waves were useless, but were required to get us to the third stage. I don't blame the first two waves of scholarship. They didn't have a choice. But we have the benefit of hindsight of 200 years worth of process. Here was the first wave. The original so-called biblical archaeologists were primarily Bible-believing Christians. And their mission was to prove that the Bible really happened. So when they went on digs, they weren't coming in as neutral scientists. They were coming in as believing Christians who, funny enough, would interpret the data to match what they were looking for in the first place. Because if you're looking for a certain conclusion, funny enough, you very often come to that. It doesn't matter what field you're in. Okay, and this is what was happening there. So the first wave of scholarship came along and said, you see, we're finding all these things that prove the historicity of Tanakh. That was phase one. And again, as I mentioned before, I, I'm sympathetic to what they were trying to do because I do believe in Tanakh and its sanctity. However, this is terrible scholarship, right? So no offense. But again, we have, I can say that 200 years later where it's very easy to say. But at the time, they, they did great work. But because it came with that bias, it, it's poor scholarship. So it's not surprising that then came the second wave of scholars that said, no, it's the other way around. Uh, the fact that we're finding all these ancient and Eastern stories of floods and creation narratives and laws that are sometimes strikingly similar to the laws of the Torah demonstrates to that second wave of scholars that the Tanakh is simply a knockoff of ancient Near Eastern culture. We simply had our version of a creation story and our version of a flood story and our version of this and our version of that. But basically, we simply drew from ancient mythologies and made it our way. That was the second phase. No offense, that's no better scholarship than the first phase. Right? All of this is just good old polemics, where you had the Bible-believing people trying to prove the Bible, and you had the Bible non-believing people trying to knock holes in the Bible. And both of them were very easy to do, because everybody had an agenda. Finally came the third wave of scholarship. Umberto Casuto was involved, Moshe Greenberg, Nafim Sarna. You really had some great scholars in the 20th century, and many others. I mean, these are three of the big names, but there are many, many others. who started saying, you know, Yecheskel Koifman also, I can't ignore him in a, in a list like that. He was a very prominent scholar in this area. Uh, why don't we see what Tanakh has in common with its surrounding culture and what it has that is different from its surrounding culture? And this suddenly opened a whole fruitful avenue where we can say, it's not about proving the historicity of or disproving the historicity of, because both of those are a waste of time, uh, but rather to focus on what are the values that are conveyed by ancient myths and by ancient laws? And in compare and con contrast, what are the values conveyed by the stories and the laws of the Torah? Here already we have something to talk about. And all of a sudden it opened up a really fruitful discussion. A couple of my favorite examples. There are gazillions of these. There's nary a course goes by when I teach at Yeshiva University, where there aren't at least some examples that come up. But here are just a couple just, you know, that you could put in your pocket and most importantly are short. So when you're giving an hour-long shiur for it to cover everything, uh, you can do short examples. Uh, every single culture had a something of life, a tree of life, a plant of life, a fountain of life, you name it. Every single mythology in the good old days had some kind of magical thing that if you or even the gods eat of it, then you live forever. Okay. So Umberto Casuto was very well aware of that. 
Casuto notes that in the Garden of Eden narrative, something very unusual happened that never happened before. There are two special trees. There's a tree of life, just like anybody else had. But we also have this Esadato Bara, which I don't want to translate today because that's a very important shiur, but that's, that's not today's shiur. But we, you know, we typically call it the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Let's take that for now. But there's a lot to say about what to call it and what it's doing. What I can tell you is that the Torah makes very clear the Ezechayim is a secondary tree in the narrative, meaning hypothetically, if Adam and Chava were brighter about this, they should have eaten of that first because they were never prohibited from eating. Right? But the only tree that matters in the primary narrative is the Ezechayim. That's the one God says, don't eat of it. And once they eat of it, okay, now trouble, they get banished. Suddenly now God cares that they not eat of the Ezechayim. So he kicks them out and guards the Ezechayim with the Kruvi. Very nice. So Kasuto is the one who's able to tell us, and this is very helpful, uh, everybody had a, a something of life. Nobody had a something of knowledge. This already gets interesting. So what the Torah is doing here is something very profound. Even though we believe in an afterlife and the idea of, you know, the immortal soul in some form or another, I mean, Jewish tradition has certainly downplayed focus on that issue, but we certainly believe in an afterlife. to not cover to cover believes in it, but it's not going to focus on that. Our focus, says the Gan Eden story and everything else in the rest of Tanakh, is building a righteous life and community in this world. And the goal of the Nevi'im is not heaven, it's the Mashiach. The goal is to realize a perfected society, or Gan Eden, globally. In this world, not somewhere else. So the Torah does that by shifting the emphasis of the trees. That is a really cool point that you and I could not have figured out just with the text alone. Because I didn't know that nobody else had a tree of Everybody else had a something of life and nobody else had a something of knowledge. This is a useful tip that we can gain out of archaeology. And it's precisely because you can compare and contrast. Another one, Brit Milah. You know, in later times, we Jews practiced Brit Milah and everybody else were non-Jews did not. But in the good old days, most people had a Brit Milah. Maybe not exactly in the same way as we did. We might have had halakhic ways to perform a Brit Milah, but circumcision is an incredibly widespread ritual that even goes far beyond the ancient Near East, goes to many other cultures as well. Okay, so what you need to know is that in every other one of these cultures, it was a manhood ritual, meaning this, this for us is a bar mitzvah. Okay, so learning a parashah haftarah and possibly even giving a speech and getting a lot of presents is way better than being circumcised when you're 13 years old, right? But so for everybody else, it was a manhood. I assume the goal was you better not cry or shriek or shout or anything. And now you're a man. You're not a kid anymore. You can leave the society of children and join the ranks of manhood. And you have 12 and a half years to agonize over what's going to happen to you when you're 13. But you're ready. Oh, boy, are you ready? You better be ready. The Torah completely transforms. That. Torah isn't the first one to say to cut the foreskin. What matters is the meaning of the Brit Milah. And that is... Uh, redeemed manhood in the Torah, it's, the obligation is on the father. We do it on an infant. Nobody else did it on an infant. Right? They did it on a basically close to puberty age, around 13 years old, give or take. So for us, it became a father's obligation to teach the covenant to his children. So whereas the point of the circumcision ritual in every other culture is, a real man is a brave military hero. You can withstand seriously excruciating pain Take it like a man, as they would put it, and great, now you're ready to join adult, adult manhood. That's what a warrior king, that's what a warrior great hero is about. The Torah says, no, 
That's not what makes you great. What makes you great is if you're pious and righteous and transmit the covenant to your children. If you're going to make babies, raise them and raise them in the covenant. That's what manhood is. It's a, it's a stunning turnaround, but again, it requires knowledge that everybody else practiced circumcision. The Philistines didn't, the Greeks didn't. That's why we called them in Tanakh, Arelim. They were the uncircumcised ones. It was shocking to us. Oh, they don't do any circumcision. That was unusual in Israel's world. Most other peoples practice some form of circumcision. Uh, one last example, which I like very much, is Ayin Tachat Ayin. So whatever it means in Halakha, that, that requires a whole shiur. One thing is clear. Ayin Tachat Ayin in the Torah, as we understand it, is financial compensation, as we know through Torah Shadal Peh. But the same law applies to everybody. If you poke out A-Z-I, it doesn't matter who A is. The law is the same, Ayin Tachat Ayin. In the laws of Hammurabi in source number one, which Ahad is very kindly posted. So if you haven't already received it, here you go. Uh, if an awilu should blind the eye of another awilu, they shall blind his eye. So that's physical blinding. That's really, you know, talion. That's really you know, like for like. Awilu means a nobleman, by the way. If he should break the bone of another awilu, they shall break his bone. So at least in the laws of Hammurabi, there's like for like, if you're breaking the bone of a nobleman. If he shall blind the eye of a commoner or break the bone of a commoner, he shall weigh and deliver 60 shekels of silver. Then it's financial compensation. There's a difference in law, and there are many differences in law. It's a class system. So the chidush of the Torah isn't ayin tacharayin. Hammurabi has it also. Uh, the chidush of the Torah is that it's democratic, and not 21st century democratic way, but all society is treated equally. There's no such thing as a nobleman getting one law and a regular person getting another law. Everybody in Israel is treated the same under the law of Israel. So knowing Hammurabi actually really comes in handy for understanding what the revolution of the Torah is in this area. And it's across the board. But there's one equal law for everybody, even the king is under the law, right? And that, that's a huge difference. So that's one very productive area of archaeological scholarship that is incredibly fruitful. Seeing where the similarities lie, seeing where the differences lie, and understand, trying to look for what the underlying values of each, what is each one trying to teach, or what does each one assume. Okay, that's that area. Another area is uh, realia. Realia is a snazzy word to describe real life things of that time, objects of that time period. So realia, very often you cannot figure out from Tanakh, because how in the world are you supposed to know? Right, we can read, okay, make the tzitz, and on the tzitz it's supposed to say kodesh lashem, right? Sorry that the chuchik showed up in the wrong place. That happens sometimes in chat. You get the gist of it, right? Kodesh Lashem. And obviously it's Yud, then Hey, then Bab, then Hey. Hashem's real name, not a Hey with a chuchik anyway. All right. So how should those words appear on the tzitz physically? How in the world can I possibly know this? I would assume, silly little me, that, okay, you just write it that way. It's a little stripe of gold. It's a little strip of gold. And just engrave in that golden strip, Kodesh Lashem. Okay. Well, a realia type of thing is when you actually, let's say you could actually find the tzitz. That would be cool. So there's a really interesting Gemara, which most Rishonim, for the record, do not take at its word. But it's cool anyway, because it just opens up the discussion, and I think it's very fascinating. So I'm going to read it in English over here, and you have the Hebrew as well. Source 2, Masachet Sukkah. The tzitz was in the shape of a plate of gold, two finger breadths broad, stretching from ear to ear, and upon it were engraved two lines, yod He above, and Kodesh followed by a Lamed below. Wow. So the assumption of the starting position of the Gemara is that uh, Kodesh Lashem is not simply written in order, 
but rather on one line you had Hashem's name, and then you have the Kodesh La down below. There was two lines. Rabbi Eliezer, son of Rabbi Yosei, said, I saw it in Rome, and it had Kodesh Ladonai on one line. Okay, so that's what reality is. Like, I went to the Vatican, presumably, and I saw the thing, and it's in one line. Okay, so that's pretty cool. So if you take Rabbi Eliezer at his word, this case is closed. It's kind of like when you read the Machloket of what the menorah looked like. Is it Rashi is, you know, the more circular type of arch, or is it, you know, Rambam's more, you know, angled thing? And then you look at the Arch of Titus. Okay, voila, that's a reality moment. Okay, so it was like this. Rashi was right and Rambam is not right. I don't blame Rambam. He didn't see the Arch of Titus. But assuming that they, they were wicked people, but I imagine that they got the basic form of the menorah correct when they engraved that thing as part of their victory monument. That's a good example of reality. So if you take that arch at its word, we have an answer to that question. That's a reality. It happens that many Rishonim ignore Rabbi Eliezer, they knew this Gemara, and continue to insist that Kodesh Lashem was written on two lines and they debate how it was done. But some Rishonim do accept Rabbi Eliezer at his word and, and assume that it was at one line. But the premise is, if this was intended as literal, then that's a reality, a story in the Gemara itself. Uh, hold on one second. Okay, great. Here's one that, that seems much more real and which can be taken the book. How much does a shekel weigh? How am I supposed to know? You read the Torah time and again. Okay, take 20 shekels of silver. Take a half a shekel of silver from the census. Now, here's what I do trust. Moshe Rabbeinu knew, Bitzalel, the architect of the Mishkan knew. And when it comes to stuff like take a half a shekel of silver, every single Israelite knew what that meant. It was a unit of weight. It was a standard unit of weight, a very commonly used one. And everybody knew what a shekel weighed. Okay, that's good for them, but it doesn't help me. When I'm looking at the Torah, I have no clue what a shekel weighs. It could be a pound. It could be an ounce. It could be a couple of grams. I don't know. How could, and you don't know either. There's no way from any biblical text that you can ascertain what a shekel weighs. That's a realia question. Okay, so as far as I'm concerned, that's moot. I nod my head and I say, whatever it weighs, everybody knew what to do. And you might compare shekel weights and various things, just if you want to derive any meaning from that. That's all cool. Ramban, Nachmanides, made Aliyah at the end of his life. He was fleeing Spain, but all the same, he came to Israel. And he wrote what you and I would call a diary. And in this diary, he reports something very interesting in Source 3. That, thank God, I have merited coming to Akko, a town in northern Israel. And I found there in the possession of the elders a silver coin. And on both sides, there was clear writing. In the dot, 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 he writes at length. Uh, it says, Shekel Hashikali meaning one shekel. All right, good. They showed the coin to the Samaritans and they read it immediately. As this is Paleo-Hebrew, what we call Ketav Ivri, still used by the Samaritans as is related in Tractate Sanhedrin. How cool is this for Ramban? He makes Aliyah at the end of his life. He finds this coin, obviously in very good condition if you're a coin collector. The lettering is clear. He just couldn't read it because he had never seen Ketav Ivri before. He had read about it in the Talmud. He knew that there was such a thing as Old Hebrew, that was replaced by Ezra Sofer with the Kitab Ashuri that we all use. Okay, but Ramban didn't know what Kitab Ivri looked like. He just knew what the Talmud talked about. Oh, so now this coin is written in Kitab Ivri. So Ramban couldn't read it. So he shows it to the Samaritans. He's like, wait a minute, according to the Talmud, you Samaritans should be able to read this thing. I'm like, sure. It says Shekel Hashkalim. Then Ramban comes up with a new move, which is, hey, give me that thing. And he put it on a scale. And sure enough, this thing weighed exactly what Rashi thinks a shekel should weigh. 
Now she's having a very good day. Uh, and it doesn't weigh what some other great rabbis thought. He's like, so cool. Wow, I, I solved the problem. It's a reality of thing. The only way you can possibly do it is to weigh a shekel from the ancient world. And then Ramban says something very important. The words of Rashi are supported by this coin. So what I love about this Ramban comment here is two things. One, he obviously shows what we were talking about, which is realia artifacts can matter. They certainly can shed light on the biblical world and help us understand things. But he also doesn't say that Rashi's view is proven. Ramban is a very careful scholar. He knows very, very, very well, A, this coin might not date back to the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. Maybe there was a different unit of Shekel back then. Or perhaps there were even different units of Shekel floating around. And sure enough, he'd be right about all these things. And so what he's saying is, look, this is the first tangible evidence I've ever seen, and this happens to support Rashi. But I don't know that Rashi's view is proven. Perhaps we will find other old Shekel coins that say the word Shekel and weigh something else. And then maybe, maybe it weighs exactly what the other rabbis think. Don't know. So this is a great example of where uh, realia can help us a lot, but it doesn't go all the way. It simply is useful. One last example of realia in the realm of physical objects is a notorious problem for the Rishonim, for our medieval commentaries, from source number four. So our translation here already reflects the new translation, but when Shaul is king, he's battling against the Philistines, and the text goes out of its way to tell us that the Israelites did not have real weapons, with the exception of Shaul and Yonatan. And the Philistines really dominated the land. How much did they dominate? It says here, the charge for sharpening was a pim for plowshares, mattocks, three-pronged forks, and axes for setting the goats. That's lovely, and it's a good translation, and that's where we're going to end up. But if you look at the Hebrew, If you didn't read the translation, nobody knows what pim means. It's the only time in all of Tanakh that the word appears. So Rashi and just about everybody who follows him in the medieval period who only have text in front of them conclude that if all these other things in the Pasuk are tools, Pim must be another name for a tool that we just don't know. Rashi even suggests maybe Pim is a formal plural of the word peh or mouth. So maybe it's some tool that has teeth like a saw, which is ingenious. And that's, and most commentators immediately accept that because they have nothing better. It sounds really, really good. Okay. So at some point in the 20th century, archaeologists discovered weights, little weights, that had the word PM engraved on them. And for the most part, they take it to be, I like this word, it's a good English word, portmanteau. I only learned it because of PIMs. Portmanteau is a snazzy way to say, like a, a word that gets merged into one. A podcast is a portmanteau. It's, it's, it's a combination of iPod, broadcast. So, it's a, so PM is P. Schneider, right? That, that's what probably a portmanteau, it stands for that. So P. Schneim, oh, if I can help with the long caps lock. One more time, and this time I think it's going to be a charm. Yeah. Okay, P. Schneim. So PM is a, is a portmanteau for that. It's contracting these two words into one. P. Schneim means two thirds. So this thing, a PM, weighs two thirds of a shekel. And so once you know that, they even found half PM weights, which, which weigh, you know, close to you know, four grams. You know, a PM weighs at close to eight grams. A shekel is a little over 11 grams. So voila, everything matches up. So from that perspective, case closed. 
The pasuk means what the JPS translation tells us, the Jewish Publication Society over here. The charge for sharpening was a pim. You paid a pim of silver, two-thirds of a shekel, to sharpen your tools. It's not a, a tool itself, but rather it's simply something like that. Okay, so this is a, these are three of gazillions of examples of where archaeology can shed light in the realm of realia. Sometimes it really is a clear-cut case, like the PM. Sometimes it's a little more iffy, which is why, like, the weight of a shekel, which is why Ramban is a little more cautious over there. Another area, I'm, I'm not even going to give examples here, geography. There's no question that Israeli scholars in the 20th century have a monumental advantage over every earlier generation of interpreter who are using medieval European maps of Israel, which were very primitive and typically terribly inaccurate. I don't blame the map, the map makers. They did their best. Uh, but geography is enormously enhanced by contemporary scholarship. It's beyond archaeology in the strict sense, but identification, place identification is enormously helpful. Ramban Nachmanides also makes one other point. This is, I'll just say it's Ramban on Breshit 35.16. There he actually updates his commentary. Because once he made Aliyah, he thought that two places were very far apart. He thought that Beit Lechem and Kever Rachel were far apart when he was still living in Spain. And he says, now that I'm here, I see that Kever Rachel is very close to Beit Lechem. So I'm changing my interpretation. Ramban actually updated his commentary, and we have the record of that, which is super cool. Uh, but it's really very valuable to see how a geographical knowledge it helps to simply be in the land of Israel or reach people who are there and be able to do it. So that's the realm of realia, and then we have the realm of geography. Another realm where archaeology is incredibly helpful is the realm of linguistics. Uh, in the good old days, all of our commentaries they knew the Talmud, so they knew that Aramaic is a very similar language to Hebrew. Those rabbis living in Arabic-speaking countries also knew that Arabic is incredibly similar to Hebrew, and they used Arabic to interpret all kinds of difficult words. Ibn Ezra talks about that in Source 5. You can read that on your own. But all the same, Ibn Ezra just takes for granted. It was shown Yishmael, which means Arabic. That is useful. Nowadays, we also have other languages at our disposal, ancient Semitic languages called Akkadian, Ugaritic, and others, which our Mifarshim did not know because they were all underground. But in the last 200 years, these two languages and other Semitic languages were unearthed and deciphered. And oh boy, can they help us understand all kinds of, th- all kinds of things. My two favorite Akkadian tips uh, one is the Migdal Bavel. You know that the Migdal Bavel is called that because that's where Hashem balal their language. Hashem confused their tongues. Okay. So I was always good with that as a kid and honestly, even as an adult, until I re- read Umberto Casuto's commentary, where he asked a very obvious question. I was kicking myself for at least not asking him the question. You know, Babylonians also called their town Babylonia. And I can't believe that they called their town Babylonia because they thought that they were confused. I'm like, yeah, I'm such a Judeo-centric person. You know, I'm just assuming, oh, yeah, of course, that's why Babylonia is called that. Yeah, but the Babylonians named their city, and they, they didn't call it that for that reason. Okay, so in Akkadian, Akkad is just another biblical word for Babylonia in the Torah. That's why that word is used that way. Uh, so in Akkadian, Bab Elim means the gate of the God, or in Hebrew, Arhashamayim. Exactly what Yaakov Avinu uses later on with the Sulam dream. Okay, so in other words, the Babylonians saw their town as the very epicenter of the place where heavens meet earth. And they were very proud of that fact. I mean, it's not a fact, but they sure thought it was, and they believed that, and they 
did it. So Kasuto argues, what's the Torah doing? You guys think that you're the gate of the God. Well, I'm God here, and I'm telling you, you guys are so confused. That is a massively, amazingly neat interpretation that, of course, we couldn't have without knowledge of Akkadian and just knowledge of what the Babylonians thought of themselves. And so there's a lot more to say. There's a shiur in every last one of these tidbits. I'm just giving like a tidbit piece. Uh, but that's a very important insight that you, we simply could not have prior to the knowledge of, of Akkadian through archaeology, as well as the mythology that the Babylonians had about their ziggurats. Okay, one last example of that is Kruvim. So what in the world are Kruvim? So I don't know. I have the Talmud, which says that it's, you know, that they're kid-shaped, you know, kid faces. That's in the Masechet Chagiga. I'm going to just write the source. It's not in our source sheets, but I'll tell you where to find it if you want to look it up. That Kiravia, they turned it as a cognate thing that it's, it's like a child. Uh, but Nahum Sarna points out that in Akkadian, uh, Kuribu, that's an Akkadian word. Kuribu means huge man-headed bulls with eagle's wings, which is exactly how Yechezkel describes the Kuruvia. So huge man-headed bulls with eagle's wings. In other words, it's a composite beast that were placed outside of the temples. All right, so that seems much closer to the mark. And Bnei Israel would have understood that Kruvim are used in this way, they're composite beasts, and that they weren't childlike faces, but rather a grown man and several other animals, exactly as Yechezkel describes in his Masei Merkava, a combination of ox and eagle and lion and a man, but like a grown man, not a child. So these are many, many examples that you have out there of where cognate languages, including languages that we simply did not know prior, can be at least helpful. It doesn't prove that that's what Kruvim mean, it could really come in handy in this situation. Uh, a couple of other big zones of coverage, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, historical background. Uh, when you read the so-called Nevi'im Achronim, Yeshayahu, Yirmiyahu, Yechezkel, if you just read them in a vacuum, they sound really repetitive. I remember as a high school kid walking out of there saying, look, I promise that I will never worship another idol again. And I, that's basically all I got out of three years of high school study of these books, because that's what it sounded like. It's like, oh, man, these guys are worshiping idols and the Nevi'im are trashing them. Shouldn't be a bad person either. I, I picked up that message as well. I decided to be a good person. So the Nevi'im did their job, but it still sounded very repetitive. Uh, what made it come to light for me was just knowledge of what we know of the historical background of the geopolitical realities of the ancient Near East. And suddenly you realize, oh, these Nevi'im are real people talking to real kings, dealing with real problems, with real big empires that are closing in on Israel. That was a game changer. So when you read the Dat Mikra series, they're from Masadarath Kot, the 20th century commentary, written by a team of scholars. There's not, it's not one person. It's a, a team of scholars that wrote the Dat Mikra commentary. It's an orthodox commentary of the 20th century put out by Masadarath Kot. The things that I, the volumes that I gained the most out of were the so-called Nevi Machronim, because they're the ones who supplied a lot of background. And I was like, wow, that brings these people to life. Suddenly they're real people and are engaged in a real tough series of situations. They've never been the same. And now it's, it's, it's one of my favorite areas of Tanakh to learn because you really feel the realities of that time and how the Navi was trying to see through it and guide kings and nobles and the people through very, very difficult decisions. That's amazing. And it's true in a different way when you read Mishlei. When you read the wisdom proverbs of other peoples, you can see what is in common with Mishlei and what is different with Mishlei. And it's a fascinating enterprise to do when you learn something like Mishlei. Okay? Uh, one last leg of this journey 
is the amazing similarities and differences even with the revelation at Sinai. We understand that the revelation at Sinai was a singular event. But we also know that Hashem needed B'nai Israel to understand what he was talking about. So the idea that there might be very striking similarities between Hittite treaty techniques, between the Lord and the, the suzerain, meaning the dominant king, and the weaker king, what we call the vassal, there are enormous similarities between that kind of treaty and the Sinai treaty. So if I tell you that the primary clauses of a Hittite treaty always included a preamble. Hello, this is my name, said the, so it's like, Anochi Hashem right? That was always followed by his, a historical prologue. Why the vassal owes loyalty to the Lord King, such as, Asher I've taken you out of slavery, so you owe me. Then a demand for total allegiance to this king. Okay, that's don't have any other gods before me, right? And then the stipulations of the treaty, here are the laws. I was always followed by curses and blessings. Curses on you if you don't uphold this treaty and blessings on you if you do. Uh, finally, and it was finally with an oath sworn by a vassal. Once you know these general outline forms, you can appreciate, okay, the form of the treaty making at Sinai is very, very similar to that. Uh, what is different then is the content. The content of the Aserat Hadibrot is just, it was totally different from anything else. Just to give, you know, three or four examples, the idea of a transcendental deity having a relationship with people was unheard of in the ancient Near East. Uh, the idea that an entire nation made a covenant with their God was completely unheard of in the ancient Near East. The idea that all laws are from God and not from a king, completely unheard of in the ancient Near East. Since God is the Lord King, uh, uh, the, the, this treaty is eternal. Uh, every king, human kings, they knew when they made treaties, okay, dynasties change, history changes, etc. Whereas uh, the God-Israel covenant is eternal. And the list just goes on and on and on. It was a radical revolution, but B'nai Israel could understand the revolutionary nature of the Torah precisely because here is a s- typical treaty-making technique, but it is applied in such a different way with such different con- content uh, that B'nai Israel understood that they were part of a singular relationship in all of history. So to summarize everything, and then we'll do some Q&A to the end. There's lots more to say, of course, but I was hoping to at least give a, an outline of some major areas where archaeology is helpful. Uh, the what happened historically question is a counterproductive question, even when learning Tanakh alone, and it doesn't get any better when you learn archaeological scholarship, simply because then you have to choose whether you believe in Tanakh's historicity or not, to begin with, and then it's a dead end. You lose what Tanakh is about. Using archaeology as a learning tool, one of our many tools that we have in our box, has infinite value in the realm of realia, uh, geography, linguistics, historical background or comparative wisdom, the idea of just understanding the historical setting of Tanakh. These and so many other areas vast improvement in learning. And the best one is simply when you talk about the compare contrast with regard to values. So we can really understand and pinpoint what the Torah was revolutionizing against and how much better the Torah's moral values and just values in general are. And from that perspective, archaeology holds out limitless benefit to the Orthodox learner because we can simply understand God's word much better the more we understand the setting and language of the Torah. On that happy note, thank you again. And let's zip it over to Q&A. I say that there's something over here. Is there any interesting archaeology on the Purim story or studies that address it? There is somebody whose name is, I think it's Yehuda Landy. I'm pretty sure that's his name. You can 
Google him. I hope I'm getting this right. He's an Orthodox scholar who does try to shed light on the Megillah via archaeology. He's an Orthodox man, and he's definitely trying to write it from that perspective. And so it may, it may come in handy. And then again, you could always decide how compelling is this or that bit for how it might relate to the Megillah. That's usually where I go with all of these things. So I want to know, is this a good learning tool or not? Uh, let me see before getting too far afield. Since you're asking already, I just want to see if I can make sure that I have his name right. Okay, here you go. I even have the title of the book for you. I could do better. Here you go. Bam. That's what I have in my notes. All right, so... So I've read it before, with pleasure always. I'm always happy to recommend a good book. So again, when I say a good book, it doesn't mean that I agree with everything that is in there, even though I'm sympathetic to the cause that he's trying to go for. Uh, but what matters is he at least brings in material from the world of ancient Persia. And that to me is always worthwhile, just to hear you know, Persian setting from that perspective. All right. Okay, I appreciate you're not trying to reconcile. Good, thank you. Now, if there's any discussion on religious Jewish sources regarding carbon dating or other methods of dating that seem wildly contradict biblical timeline of events. Uh, here, I think you have to tell me more specifically what you have in mind in terms of what wildly contradicts biblical events. Well, I guess the creation story is probably the main thing that comes to mind. I'm not, not an expert, but I, you know, it's one of the things you hear regularly people talk about in terms of timelines. I, I don't have another example, to be honest. Oh, so if you just mean, is the world 6,000 years old or is it gazillions of years old? Well, I didn't want to just go down the evolution route, but yeah, I, I guess that's the example. Okay, that's, that's, not so. that's just a typical, that's an older question of just good old faith in science. So I think any follower of Rav Sadigon and Rambam has no concern whatsoever about the possibility of the world and, and the universe being billions of years old just because you can't contradict empirical evidence. Now, again, science may change its mind one day. I don't know where science is going to end up. Science isn't always fact, but there's never a reason to hide from scientific conclusions because that's simply what Rafsadia and Rambam and many others have told us. That's not archaeology. That's, that's, a, that's a faith science question in a much bigger sense, also a worthy shior. And many great thinkers in the, in the more modern era had no fuss with that. People like Rav Shimshon and Raphael Hirsch, of Aram Yitzchak Kok, of Joseph Soloveitchik, had no problem, you know, saying, okay, the Torah is not trying to be a science textbook teaching us the scientific basis for cosmology, which is the creation of the cosmos. So, yeah, so that's not, a, again, that's not a carbon dating issue. That is, that's, that's what the physicists are doing. Right? Carbon dating has to do with artifacts that you find underground, which are a few thousand years old. So I'm not aware of any archaeological find that wildly, contra wildly contradicts uh, anything in Tanakh. There are certain, there's no question that archaeological theories don't always line up with Tanakh, but that has to do with some fact and some theory. Uh, but I don't, I'm not aware of any fact that requires us to reinterpret Tanakh you know, in, a, in a major way like that. Okay, any other questions? Ask a question. Um, what is considered the threshold for something being proven archaeologically? You're asking a great question. In fact, that's one that really belongs to the, you know, you have to ask the archaeologists. Like they have different standards of what is considered proven. And what I do, I, 
I, you know, again, I, I know that I'm a nice Orthodox rabbi who likes the truthfulness of Tanakh, but all the same, I don't care about proving its historicity through any artifacts. You know, to me, that's a, that's a meaningless pursuit. But archaeologists who do have to make decisions make decisions. You know, something will just be big. Here are the data, and hopefully they can all at least agree fundamentally on what those data are. And then the fun part becomes, how do you interpret the data? Right? So there you run into the art and the subjective component of scholarship, which is part of any field, but it's really high in this area. And, and because of its loadedness, that's what I was talking about at the beginning, uh, you will find that it's hard to be neutral, meaning somebody who doesn't care about Tanakh or is antagonistic to Tanakh might interpret whatever little data they have one way. And people who love Tanakh and believe in it, or at least are sympathetic to it, uh, might interpret the same data in a very different way. So to me, I, I like reading both sides to see. If they all agree, this is probably a good interpretation of something, and maybe I'll quote it in my read if it helps. Right? Whereas if they flatly disagree with one another, if I, if I feel like it, I might present you know, this and that. Just to give an example, I mean, I remember when Adam Zartal, I, I don't remember when he published it, I was, I was a kid. But in the 1980s, uh, I remember reading about it for the first time, a man named Adam Zartal found what he thought was a Mizbeach on Har Eval, an altar. And he dated it, carbon dating, to around the time of when Yoshua bin Nun should have been around. It. And we know that Yoshua bin Nun built an altar at that time, because Sefer Yoshua tells us. So he figured he found Yoshua bin Nun's altar. Okay, so that's really cool. He publishes articles about this and he shows his evidence. Okay, so it's just like the internet now, except they didn't have the internet when he published that. It was the mid-80s. So sure enough, in the next issue of Biblical Archaeology Review, somebody else wrote an article saying, A, this is, it's, not even, it's not even an altar. It's a, it's a watchtower, an ancient watchtower. Okay, so that became the debate over there, and here's the evidence for that. Okay, so by now, we've had you know, a long time, close to 40 years to filter that. So the current prevailing theory is, yes, it's an altar, but it seems to have been built on an earlier altar site rather than a brand new altar, the way that Sefer Yoshua describes Yoshua building his. So it's an old, old, old altar, which is cool anyway, but probably not the one that Yoshua bin Nun made. All right. So to me, it's neither here nor there. I didn't need this to be Yoshua's altar to prove the story or to learn the lessons, just to plug in what we've been talking about. I don't care if it was a watchtower. What difference does that make? That doesn't refute anything. It just means this thing is irrelevant to the story in Sefer Yoshua, chapter 8. And if it's some ancient altar that isn't Yoshua's, okay, cool. Maybe we can learn something about an ancient Israelite altar, even if it's not the juicy altar that Adam Zertal was hoping it would be. Okay. So as you can see, uh, there's a different threshold for how to interpret this evidence and what is considered a fact, even with regard to something that at least by now there seems to be relative consensus that it is some ancient altar. So it's hard to say. And again, here you just have to talk to real archaeologists who do this for a living, who can at least give their own personal guidelines, or perhaps there even is a current professional standard. But let it be known that a professional standard may change by some new article today, tomorrow, in 20 years. I don't know. And, and there certainly have been different models that have been used over the last century. So, I don't, so it's, hard to, it's hard. I can't wait. and I'm not qualified. But even somebody who's qualified might tell you, here's the history of what might have answered your question over the last 200 years. And I'm sure that there are very different standards that would be applied. So to me, it's a tool rather than we're done. We have our fact. And I'll just close with one last thing, and then that will be that. You know, the, a really good example of the you know 
archaeology gone wrong is the camel issue, which comes and still comes up, which drives me crazy. I'm talking about terrible scholarship that just shows up on the internet at random all the time. All right. So one of the great 20th century archaeologists was a man named William Foxwell Albright. He was an American. He taught in Baltimore, Johns Har- at Johns Hopkins University. He was really one of the world-renowned archaeologists. And he was, quote-unquote, fairly conservative. He thought that most of Tanakh was true, but then he realized he had one problem. It says that Avram Avinu had a whole pile of camels and other people had camels. And he said there's no evidence of camels until the 12th century BCE. So here he felt, oh, it's a problem. Oh, no, the Avot go back to the 18th or 19th century BCE, many centuries before. There were camels widespread in that area. Okay, so already in the 1960s, there were articles published showing Yes, camels were not widespread in the in this part of the ancient Near East until the 12th century. Albright was right about that. But there were examples of camels in that area, particularly held by very wealthy people. Okay, so guess what? The fact that Avram Avinu had some, he was a very wealthy man. It's not at all surprising that he had a caravan of 10 camels, even if camels were not commonly used in that area at that time. He was, he was like a prince, certainly after he visited Paro and got showered with uh, Paro's wealth. So this is a good example of this already from the 1960s. So to me, the case is done. We're, we're finished with this. Let's go on to something else more interesting. Yet you continually hear claims of, you see, the Torah is anachronistic because it mentions camels, but the Avot could not have had camels. This is a, even if we never found any evidence of camels, we can't argue from silence that there were no camels. Maybe tomorrow you'll find one. But in this case, we found evidence of this more than 50 years ago. So it's about time that people just get better scholarship onto the radar. This is a good example of, of just failed scholarship. Okay, so on that happy note, uh, I will turn it back over, but not before saying thank you once again. Uh, it's really a treat and pleasure learning with you and a privilege. It's really wonderful to be part of this. And I look forward to our final session next Monday at, at 3.30 my time, I think 8.30 your time if you're in England, and then whatever other time if you happen to be somewhere else. On that happy note, I will sign off and wish you a wonderful week. Thank you so much, Pacham. Thank you everyone for being here. Stay tuned for the next class. Also, we have on Wednesday, uh, Rabbi Dweck, who is continuing with Perek Chelek. And uh, yeah, Laila Tova, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you.